Guys, uh, open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. I know your, uh, the back of your bulletin says Acts chapter 4. We're going to uh, tap the brakes just a little bit, though. I want you to know that uh, the original plan was that we would work through the book of Acts rather quickly and try to be wrapped up with it by the time that Christmas rolled around. And uh, they kind of called an audible as a church, and they decided, uh, let's, let's take a little more time going through the book of Acts. Let's spend a bit more time here. Uh, just with the idea and the perspective that there's a lot of value that we can glean from what we read in these pages. And so we're going so to slow down a little bit. And we're going to read today from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. I want to let you know that the second chapter of Acts is a, it's a pretty significant chapter within the corpus of the entire New Testament. There's a lot that goes on in this chapter. Um, it started uh, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, we heard uh, that uh, preached a couple weeks ago. Um, and then, of course, uh, the arrival of the Holy Spirit is quickly followed up by the first gospel presentation. We see Peter preach a fairly fiery four-part sermon uh, that ended with the very first altar call and the first conversions to the faith. In the text we're going to look at this morning, we're going to continue on from there, and we're going to see the Lord lighting the wick of the church And we're going to get our very first ever snapshot of what life in the early church looked like. And I say snapshot because we don't get a whole volume on this. Uh, We get basically a soundbite. We just get a little snippet. Uh, When Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, when he was taken up to heaven after his resurrection, he didn't leave behind a syllabus. He didn't leave behind a book that said, okay, guys, here's how you do church. Right? Here's where you meet, here's how long you meet for, here's the order, here's how often you serve communion. No, he didn't give us a book on this. What we do have is the example of the early church. And what we're going to read this morning is this example of the early church. We're going to see what their gatherings looked like when they got together. There's only a few verses we're going to look at at this time. Now, the book of Acts, it is a historical book. It's a narrative of what happened. But I'll tell you that theologians, they will debate whether or not the book of Acts is intended to be descriptive or whether it's intended to be prescriptive, right? Is it descriptive? Is it simply an account of what happened when the gospel went out? Or is it prescriptive? Is it it telling us that this is what it's supposed to look like as as a church? And I would argue that it's both. I think when we read this book, I think we're supposed to look upon it with historical interest, right, to get a sense for what happened, but we're also supposed to look at this and be challenged. I think we should look at this and we should look for the example of what happened and see what is within this that we should be trying to very intentionally take away from this to apply in our own setting. Now, there's something that I want you to be aware of as we get into uh, the book of Acts here, into uh, chapter 2. We are all praying for people in our life that are not yet saved. We're praying for the Lord to do a work in the lives of people whose names we wrote down on the back of this card, and we're we're asking the Lord to intervene. We're asking for Him to do a work in these people's lives. As we pray that, I want you to be aware that as we get into the the second chapter of Acts, when we start chapter 2, there are only 120 believers at this time. But by the end of Peter's sermon, which ends on verse 41, 3,000 more were added to their number that day. 3,000 more. 
the church grew 26-fold in a day. Went from 3,000, sorry, from 120 to 3,120. And by the time we look at the text that we'll be looking at next week, which is jumping up to chapter 4, we'll, sign, we'll find at the very beginning of chapter 4 that another 2,000 were added by that time. The church is going through uh, a time of unprecedented growth, explosive growth right now. And the question we need to ask is why? Why is the church growing so profoundly? Why is, such, why is there such an incredible turning towards the Lord at this time? Well, I would argue that there's a couple things. Number one, the Holy Spirit has descended and His Spirit is empowering the message that's going forth. There's a supernatural strength that is accompanying the message at this time that's unmistakable. But I would argue that there's something else as well. What we're going to see in our text, my friends, is that there is a DNA among these early believers. There's, there's a way about them that is unmistakable and this way about them caused them, as we see in verse 47, to have favor with all the people. It doesn't say they had favor with the people inside the church. It said that they had favor with all the people. And as a result of that, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, as we dive in, I want us to uh, just indulge me and, and kind of engage in an exercise some of you in this room have been in church your whole lives. You, you became a Christian at five years old, and you've been sitting in the church pews literally your whole life. And it's probably not an understatement to say that some of you have probably heard a message on the early church on Acts 2, 15 times in your life, 25 times in your life, 50 times in your life. So there may be a temptation for some of you to kind of sit back and, you know, kind of go into neutral this morning. Yeah, I've heard this one before, whatever. But I want you to look at this text, if you've heard this many times before, with fresh eyes. And if you're in this room and you've never heard a sermon on this passage, if you've never looked at what Acts chapter 2 has to say about the early church, then I'm glad you're here. And I think you'll enjoy it because it's a fantastic text. But to both of you, I offer this challenge. I want, you to, I want all of you to reflect on what church looked like then and what it looks like now. And I want you to be mindful to identify what are some of the differences that we see between how it used to operate 2,000 years ago and how it is now. Because I think some of these differences can and probably should challenge you. Now, as Lloyd and Rob have alluded to in prior weeks, um, we as a church, we're, we're kind of going through a bit of a time of recalibration right now. We're celebrating 20 years as a church this year. And uh, you folks know that when you get to certain birthdays in your life, you tend to become introspective. You look back a little bit on where you've been, and then you start to ask questions about where do you want to go from here? I'm proud of the fact that we were 20 years old this year. I joined Fellowship Bible in 2002, so I had a front row seat to a lot of these 20 years. I think there's a lot of things that Fellowship has to be proud of. There's a lot of things that they celebrate. But the leadership team is also very introspective right now. They're aware that there may be some areas where we may have drifted a little bit, where we may have gotten slightly off course unintentionally. There may be some areas that we need to identify and apply priorities that haven't been priorities for us in the past. So we're kind of in a time of reorienting ourselves, of, of redefining ourselves. Lord, where do you want us to be going forward from here? 
And I'm telling you that the church leadership is earnestly praying for the Lord to guide us in this time because we want to be what the church is supposed to be to the world, to the community. And so as we look into Acts, you need to realize that our time in this book, it's very intentional. We're not studying the book of Acts by chance. We are looking at this and we're saying, Lord, your blessing was on these people. We see that your hand was upon them as the word went out. What do we need to learn from their example? And so we're going to spend time here. And we're going to be very critical and we're going to be very introspective to say, Lord, speak to our hearts. Show us where we need to operate differently. So if you would, open, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading from verse 42. And I'm just going to read all the way through our text for this morning. Verse 42 says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning as your church, Lord, I'm grateful that we have this book in our hands that we get to go back and we look at the example of what church looked like for these first believers. Father, I pray you'd speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, would you fill my mind with your thoughts and would, you, would your spirit put your words in my mouth so that I can be an effective communicator, Lord, of your truth this morning. Lord, I seek nothing but your glory and I pray, Father, that you would give us the honor of visiting us here this morning in this gathering. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. So, fellowship, there's actually 12 different nuggets in these five verses. There's 12 different teaching ideas that we could explore. I hope you can agree with me that in a 35-ish minute teaching timeline, I wouldn't do a very good job of tackling all 12. It would feel like we would be a mile wide and about an inch deep. And so rather than trying to tackle all 12, I'm just going to grab a handful of the things that pops up in this segment of Scripture. And uh, because I prepared this, you're going you're to endure the things that convicted me as I went through here. Um, there's some things that touched my heart and struck me most profoundly, and that's where I chose to spend my time and my preparation. The first thing I want to get to is in verse 42. It says, uh, continually... They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, this was a learning, studying church. And this is something that they were not casual about. As we'll find in these five verses, there's a lot of things that Luke said about this gathering. Uh, He alludes to them being a joyful church. We discovered that they were a vibrant church. We discover they were an expanding church. And these are all important things. But nevertheless, the very first thing that Luke uses as the author of Acts to describe this people is the teaching. He says they were devoted to it. It was something that was held in the highest regard. And my friends, this is meant to be what church looks like. The center of the church is meant to be a holy gathering of God's people in the presence of the Bible. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 says, guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, study the word to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God and is profitable. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, preach the word. My friends, the word is intended to be central among our gathering, the focus of our time together. But you need to know, it hasn't always been that way. If you look at church history, you realize that there is about an 1,100-year time gap where the Bible was not considered central in the church. From about the 5th century until about the 16th century, we got away from this. It was not the focus of our getting together as a group of people. In fact, it wasn't until almost exactly 500 years ago this year, in 1517, that a fairly angry monk named Martin Luther was reading through here, and he discovered that the Roman Catholic Church was actually acting out of step with what is described in this book. And he took this up with his superiors. He went to his cardinals, he went to his bishops, and says, hey guys, wait a minute, uh... What you're talking about, how you're conducting business, it's, it's not what this book says. And so what he did when he didn't get very far with his efforts is he literally recorded all of his grievances. He recorded all of his objections to what he was seeing, and he composed a list. There were 95 objections. And he posted this list of grievances to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany, hammered them up there, basically challenging the Roman Catholic Church to an academic debate to clarify the error of their ways. You know what he was doing? He was protesting. He started a group of people that would become the Protestants. And the movement that he began, we would look back on, it was called the Reformation. Luther's actions were to reform the church, to call them back to square one. The battle cry of the Reformation was sola scriptura. What does that mean? Scripture alone. Guys, the Bible is intended to be central. We have to have, as a people, a defining point. We have to have true north, the direction that this points, and none other. You see, as a people, when we get away from this, when we, when we do not observe true north, when we do not get together and study this book and diligently seek to apply it to our lives, you know what happens? What happens when we don't seek to do this is we just end up as a group, as a church, we end up absorbing the culture, the prevailing culture that surrounds us. We will, avoid, we will uh, absorb the worldview and the mindset of whatever else is out there. And, and when that happens, we begin to lose our saltiness, right? Psalm 105 says that Israel mingled with the nations and learned their ways. Can that happen here in America too? You think? Yeah. You guys, in 1962, we condemned the Bible out of our classrooms. We kicked it out. It was no longer a required reading. It was no longer considered part of what, it was, of what it was to be an American. And that began the journey from being a Christian nation to being a post-Christian nation. And if you turn on the news now, you could probably argue with some uh, accuracy that we're quickly becoming an anti-Christian nation. And that mindset would say that, hey, this, this isn't the Word of God. This isn't the inspired, infallible Word of God given as a lamp unto the feet of men. No, this is just a book. It's just like any other book. It's full of errors, whatever. Guys, that mind frame is in the world and is in the culture around us. 
But when you find that our churches don't hold this book high and central when it's not true north, that mindset can leak its way into our church, right, into churches. And in some churches in America, in some denominations in America, you see a very low view of Scripture where it's not considered the infallible Word of God, where it's not considered God speaking to us, right? And when that happens, we begin to lose that which distinguishes us as a people. My friends, the Bible has to remain central, the focal point of our gathering. That's point number one. What else do we see in Acts chapter 2? Well, we see references to fellowship. Now, I want to note the wording in the text when we see in verse 42 the reference to fellowship. It doesn't say that they had occasional gatherings, right? It doesn't say that the church observed potluck every other Sunday, okay? It says they were devoted to fellowship. In fact, the word choice would suggest that they were as committed to getting together as a body of believers as they were committed to biblical instruction. Now, what do we know about their fellowship? Look at verse 46. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Where did these folks meet? Well, it says they met in the temple. Right? They met in a kind of a formal church setting, very similar to what we're doing here this morning. But it also says that they met in homes. We see them breaking bread together. We see them eating together. We see them praying together. These people did life together. And how often did they meet? It says constantly, day by day. There was clearly a hunger to be together. I hope you see that. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Mike, if this book of Acts is prescriptive, if you're trying to suggest that I get together with my community of believers more often than I am right now, I, I guess you don't understand my situation. You see, Mike, there's, there's, this, there's this guy in my community group, and, oh, he's so hard to be around. I mean, i got to summon up all my strength just to be around this guy every other Thursday. It is so hard. Yeah, I get that. Many of us have different personalities, and sometimes our personalities just don't mesh. Sometimes being around other people, it feels like it's rubbing the fur the wrong way a little bit. I get that. But do you think that wasn't the case in the early church as well? Do you think that there weren't personality differences in the early church as well? Here's the difference. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. The root word of that is koin, which means common. These people came together to celebrate what they had in common because what united them was so much greater than that which divided them that they would overlook or severely discount their differences because they got to celebrate that which was greater and that united them as a people. Now, the fellowship that we read about in this text, it seems pretty radical, and I'll, I'll grant you that. It seems, it seems pretty radical. I'm not sure how many of you in this room would feel like you have at any time in your life experienced the kind of fellowship that's described in Acts chapter 2. I want to share a story with you, though, from my own history, from my own background, because I have experienced this. Um, I was 23 years old. I, was grow I grew up in Western Canada, and when I was 23, I was going through a bit of a personal storm. Uh, I had just broken off an engagement to the girl I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and that had me kind of rattled. Uh, at that same time period, my mom had two aneurysms, and she was clinging to life in a hospital. Uh, I was having 
problems at my church. I was a new believer. I'd become a Christian at 20, and there was some unrest at my church that was uncomfortable. And I was also having problems at work. I was working in franchising, and my, my, uh, I was a general manager of a franchise organization, and my vice president was telling me that I had to sue one of our franchisees. And uh, I looked at him, and I said, Why? We, we just finished a record year profit-wise. We don't need the money. We've exceeded all of our goals. And he says, we can't set the precedent that this guy can get away with what he did. So you need to take him to small claims court and recover the money. And that made me uncomfortable. Because I was a new believer, but I had read in, in the Gospels that it says you're supposed to avoid going to, neighbor, go, avoid going to court with your neighbor at all costs. And I didn't want to do that. And between work and church, and personal unrest with this broken relationship, and everything that was going on, I just decided, man, I'm on unstable ground right now, and I felt anything but close to the Lord in this season of my life. I felt really distant from Him, and I knew that that was broken. I knew that as a Christian, you're supposed to feel close to Christ in your times of need, Uh, but I didn't feel that way, and so I decided to kind of push back and step away from everything. I quit my job. I left the country, I enrolled in a Bible school in southern Sweden. I found an organization called the Torchbearers. This is a group of non-denominational Bible schools. There's 26 of them all over the world. And I decided to go to Bible school for a semester. And this Bible school in southern Sweden was in a township called Vetlanda, population 412. None of them spoke English. But I was at an English-speaking Bible school in southern Sweden. And I'll tell you, it was the weirdest experience of my life but it was wonderful. Let me explain it to you. When I got there, there was about 65 other students who were there as well. They were from all over the world. And we studied together. We read the Bible together. We listened to lecturers and teachers that came in and out every week. We listened to them together. Uh, we took our meals together. We, every Friday, there was no classes. We worked on the school grounds to improve and to maintain the school. You know what? We did that together. We worshiped together. We prayed together. I was on a basketball team while I was in Sweden. We did some sports outreach. You know what? We did that together. We were like an Amish community. It was, it was crazy. There was no TVs at the torchbearers. There's no television. You can't play music out loud. There's a really restricted, really limited lifestyle. But can I tell you, it was amazing. I left to go to the torchbearers as a young Christian, as someone who read my Bible, who prayed. When I came home four months later, I had a hunger to study the Bible. And I had a walk with Jesus that I had never known before. It is amazing what happens to you when you eliminate the distractions of the world and you focus on Christ. There are two things that have left a lasting impression on me from my time with the torchbearers. Number one, this is 20 years ago. I'm 43 years old now. This is 20 years ago. The first impression is this. I have never been closer to Christ in my life as I was during that four-month period of time. Number two, the second impression that I had is I thought to myself, Maybe the Amish aren't wrong. I've always kind of in the quietness of my sinful mind, I've always kind of quietly mocked the Amish. I don't know if you do that as well. It's probably just me. But I look at these people and their communal way of life, and I'm like, come on, guys, feel free to step out of the 1800s whenever you're ready to take that bold leap, you know? 
Like maybe embrace a little technology, right? Their communal way of life, their simplicity, it's so countercultural. It's so out of step with the, with the American way of life. But I'm telling you, I think we've got something to learn from them. Now, I'm not suggesting, guys, that we grow beards and start, you know, wearing suspenders. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just saying that when I look at how we live and I look at how they live, they're a lot closer to Acts 2 than we are. They've got community down. They've got fellowship down. They look out for each other. They're in the Word. Yeah, they're simplified. I'd rather have my car than a horse-drawn carriage. Yeah, got it. There's not everything that we probably want to say we want to adopt and we want to change. But I just look at that and I say, there's something that we need to learn from their way of life that looks more like Acts 2 than what we've got. You see, one thing you need to be aware of in American culture that's cancerous I think it operates a little bit in our blind spot because it's so pervasive in our way of life, is this. We as a people are highly, highly individualistic. In fact, this tendency, I'm convinced, has found its way into the American church as well. You see, we as Americans, we tend to look up to lone rangers. Our heroes are strong, they're self-sufficient, and they tend to walk alone. Now, my friends, that individualism, that rugged self-reliance, it's not biblical. In fact, it's anything but biblical. In fact, I would say it's downright dangerous. And I want you to hear me on this. Every individual in this room needs to obey Jesus' call to follow. But we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. Let me say that again. Every individual in this room needs to obey Jesus' call to follow, but we cannot follow Jesus as individuals. My friends, we need each other. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. And there are many of you in this room this morning, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and self-incriminate, right? But there are many of you in this room who are not in fellowship outside of 935 Sunday morning. You don't have a group of believers that you assemble with, that you get together with, that speaks into your life, whose lives you speak into as well. You don't have that. And some of you gentlemen have wives that have been asking you and pleading you for years, can we please join a community group? Can this, please, can this be the year that we finally do it? And you've been hesitant. You've been holding her back. Guys, that elbow you just felt in your ribs, okay, take heed. That's the Holy Spirit working through your wife's elbow right now, okay? Guys, we need each other. We need authentic, intimate fellowship with each other. You cannot walk the Christian road alone. You will not, I'll make you this promise, you will not build nor sustain a vibrant Christian faith alone. You won't do it. And I would argue that if you're not connected with other Christians, both serving and being served, if you're not challenging and being challenged, that you are not living as He desires and the church is not functioning as He intended. Let's move on. I got one last observation that I want to take you to. Verse 45, we see this. The early church were an incredibly generous people. It says, they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, this particular verse will catch some of us off guard a little bit. Some of you will look at this and say, 
wow, that is so countercultural. They're willing to sell their stuff to provide for everyone else. That's awesome. What a great challenge. And others of you in the room are going, huh, that's communism. That's communism. Fellowship has stooped to promoting communism. Good job, guys. Right? Let me explain to the second group first, those of you who have your arms crossed as you read verse 45. This is not communism. Okay? Communism is the prohibition of private property. Right? It's the compulsory or the obligatory sharing of, on the basis that you don't have the right to own anything. And that is not what we see here. Right? What we are seeing here are people who were not being forced to do this. They were under no compulsion to sell their belongings. Were they being forced to do this? No. So why did they do it? Why did they choose to sell their stuff, to release their own belongings, to care for others? They did it for this reason. They looked at someone in need and they said, this is my brother. This is my brother, and I must care for him. You guys, what we see in this section of Acts, this is what all society wants, but nobody can get. Every country in the world wants their citizenry to selflessly and lovingly look out for each other, but no one can institute this. How do you pull this off? As a society, how do you get this to happen voluntarily among the people? Can politics do this? Can you, can you elect the right political party who will institute legislation that will cause you to do this? No. Can education pull this off? Can education get you to want to love and care for your neighbor? No. Can membership in a certain organization, like, oh, maybe the NAACP or anything, can that, can that cause this to happen? No. How do you get this to happen? How does this voluntarily come out of the people? Guys, this happens when a people act in compassion and generosity towards one another because they see rightly that God first acted in compassion and generosity towards them. There is a pay-it-forward mentality that is the right response to understanding saved by grace. My friends, your debts, your spiritual debts were wiped clean. They were eliminated. Why? Because you couldn't pay for them. The forgiveness of your sins, it was offered to you. You know why? Because you couldn't pay for it on your own. Here's a misunderstanding that I think is pervasive in our culture. We think salvation is free. It didn't cost you anything. It's a free gift. But my friends, salvation is anything but free. It just wasn't you that paid for it. And when you understand that, when that hits you here, it results in an attitude of generosity. It results in a thankful lifestyle where you don't hold on to your stuff quite as tightly. You see, in our, in our rugged American individualism, we tend to acquire stuff and hold on to it like this, with tight fists, right? We hold on tightly, and it seems like the more we acquire, the more stuff we get, the tighter we hold, Right? And not realizing that when your hands are this tight, you don't actually enjoy the stuff you've got. I'm going to leave for South Sudan a week from tomorrow. I'm going to go see my buddy James Bach. You know what I'm going to find when I get there? The people in South Sudan are alarmingly joyful. Like it will strike you how joyful they are. And most of them don't even have a change of clothing. 
Six of them will sleep in one mud hut, and they share what they've got, and they don't have much, but they are the happiest people I have ever known. And then about 13 days later, I'll get on a plane, and I'll fly back home to Nashville, Tennessee, and I'll see grumpy people who have no joy, but who have all the stuff that they're holding like Gollum holds the ring. My precious, right? <laughs> the stuff, right? We need to have our fingers pried open because there's no joy when you hold that which has been given to you this tightly. My friends, a heart of generosity should pour out from every Christian because God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I, um, a number of years ago, um, I owned a company and I sold it. But I remember there was a time in this company where uh, we had had a, a really good quarter, like a surprisingly good quarter. And uh, I looked at our revenue, I looked at our profit, and I'm like, dang, I, that was awesome. But I almost felt guilty when I looked at how, how, how good the quarter was. And so I called a meeting, and I got together with my staff, and I said, guys, we're going to have an icebreaker to start our meeting together today. And I need you to answer this question. If you had 50 bucks and you couldn't keep it, if you had to take $50 and you had to use it to make somebody else's life better in a meaningful way, like a thoughtful way, how would you do it? And we went around the room and they had to describe needs that they are aware of in different relationships or different situations where 50 bucks would actually make a pretty significant difference in someone's life. And we went around the room and everyone shared that story. And at the end of the meeting, I opened up an envelope and I handed $500 cash to everybody in the room. And I said, here's, here's what I need you to know about this. This is not an earned bonus. None of you can point to your compensation plans and say you've earned this money. I'm giving to you, this to you freely. It's a discretionary gift, but it's coming with a condition. You need to make good on your promise. You need to take at least the $50 you spoke of and you need to use it to make somebody else's life better in a meaningful way. And do you know that when we got back together a couple weeks after that, as we started sharing the stories of what happened when we gave our money away to help people, the enthusiasm in the room was not here, it was here. There was an excitement, there was a joy about how they were able to use money to make other people's lives better. No one was reveling in the 400 bucks or the 450 bucks they put in their own pocket. There was a joy about how they were able to make positive change in someone else's life by the money they gave away. My friends, Acts 20 says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And there is truth in that. And if you're not living a generous lifestyle, if you're not giving away to a point where you feel like you've got to make some decisions about what you can and cannot do in your lifestyle because your giving is at a certain point where it hampers your lifestyle. If you're not giving away enough that you've got to restrict yourself in terms of things that you're doing, you need to up your giving. I'm not trying to place a guilt trip on you. This is not a financial matter. Guys, this is a heart matter. One of the hallmarks of Christian living is generosity, sharing with those who are in need. Okay? And I'm calling you guys to examine your hearts this morning to look at what more could we be doing to help those that are in need. Because I'll tell you, what happens when we live like this? What happens when we as a church actually apply what we read about here in Acts 2? What happens when we have fidelity to the word of the Lord? What happens when we diligently seek to follow him and follow the teachings from the Bible? What happens when we live in vibrant community with other believers? 
when we are challenged by others, when we are challenging them as well, when we're speaking into their lives and they're speaking into ours, when we have authentic community and we're looking out for the material needs of those who have want. What happens? Guys, the result of this is that the world looks on to this and it sees something that it wants. We read in verse 47 that the early church had favor with all the people and the Lord added daily to the number those who were being saved. My friends, the, the world looks at this lifestyle and they say, I don't know what it is that you've got. I don't know what's going on in that group over there, but I desperately want it for myself. It's what the early church was. And it's what we need to be as well. And I want to end our time together with a quotation that I found as I was uh, doing some reading a little while ago. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of church history. I love reading some of the different uh, periods of time within the history of the church. There was a really uncomfortable time in the history of the early church from about 64 AD uh, at the time of, Constant, uh, sorry, at the time of uh, Nero uh, to 313, uh, the time of Constantine. Uh, there was enormous persecution that was going on in the early church. And depending on where you lived, Christians would be anywhere from harassed to some of them were being thrown in the arena in Rome and lions were being released on them. Like it was a, a horrible time to be alive. But there is a Greek philosopher, a guy named Aristides, who was a, a Roman official. And he was writing to Emperor Trajan, or sorry, Emperor Hadrian, at around the time of 125 AD. And he was writing to Hadrian, giving him an observation of what the Christians looked like in his area. Can I read this to you? Check this out. I'll put it on the screen for you. Aristides says to Hadrian, They love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. And such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. Wow. Fellowship, what would it be like to live as a people for whom it could be said there is something divine among them? That's my prayer for us as a church. That's my hope for us as a body, that we would look at what we're discovering in the book of Acts and we would ask ourselves, Lord, what does it look like for us to live in a way that people would say, wow, what is so different about them? All right. I want to close our time together with... Uh, a follow-up on our church's initiative for this 40 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, I'm not sure if every one of you in this room were here last Sunday. If you were, you would have gotten one of these square booklets. Um, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to get one of these on the way out. As a church, we kicked this off last Monday um, at our uh, worship night last Monday night. By the way, how many of you were here on Monday evening last week? Show of hands. All right. For those of you who are here, what was that like? Was that a good time? It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Like nobody left last Monday night saying, oh, that was a bad idea. I don't know why we did that. It was incredible. It was 75 minutes of worship and prayer and time in the Word. It was fantastic. Um, 
what we are doing in this 40-day period is we're trying to earnestly seek the Lord's guidance in terms of what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Lord, would you guide us? Would you steer us? Would you orient us as Fellowship Bible Church? And would you speak to our hearts in this season of change and in this season of transition? And over a 40-day period, we're going to be able to send you a, a, a scripture verse. If you text this on your phone and type in Fellowship Fast, you'll get a text message every single morning that tells you what we as a body are reading in terms of uh, scripture. And there's a psalm that's been, there, that's been coming for the last number of days. There's been some prayer that's been sent to you. But I would encourage you, if you haven't done this on your phone, you can also do it on your email through the church website. You can sign up to be receiving these prompts, these, these, uh, these devotionals every single morning. And I would encourage you to join us in this. What we're striving for is unity. I want us all to be not doing this, but to be doing this as a church. I want us to all be reading the same thing, praying along the same lines, for the Lord's direction. And if you choose to, you can incorporate some fasting. You might say, what's fasting? Well, throughout the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see fasting done by people like Esther, uh, people like Joel. It was done by Daniel. It was done by Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, we see it uh, in the New Testament. We see the, the early church doing it. People prayed and fasted for Peter as they were waiting for him to be released from prison. Paul fasted for three days after he saw the risen Lord. Fasting is the decision to go without food. And the idea of it is that you're saying, Lord, I want less of this so that I can have more of you. It's a decision to temporarily go without so that you can add emphasis and urgency to your prayers. You don't have to fast. We're not asking you to. We're inviting you to do so if you choose to. And there's even a calendar on the back of this booklet where you can say, all right, on this day, I'm going to fast. Right there, I'm going I'm to miss breakfast and I'm going to miss dinner that day. Or you can choose a number of days whatever works for you, okay? I just ask you to join us in this initiative. The last thing in our time together, and I'm going to close with this. We've ended the last few messages on Sunday mornings with a time of prayer, with a time inviting you to pray just quietly in the presence of your seat right there. And I want to confess to you that there have been times in my life when I have come to church on Sunday morning and the pastor has invited me to pray when it has been my only time in prayer that week. I'm not proud of that. But I've come to appreciate the times when the pastor would facilitate a time of prayer because I, I realize that sometimes I need to be nudged to do it. For whatever reason, prayer doesn't come real natural to me. And whether it be because I'm really busy and I've got so much stuff on my schedule and I've kind of pressed you know, time with the Lord aside, or perhaps if you're experiencing this, you know, maybe there's a time in your life when you're not living really well and you're not proud of that. There's some sin in your life that you haven't dealt with. And so, like Adam and Eve in the garden, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of hide from God because we have a sense that He doesn't want to be with us if we're covered in sin. I remember a time in my early Christian life, you know, 20 odd years ago, where I was avoiding the Lord because I had let sin creep back into my life. And the guy who led me to the Lord pulled me aside and said, Hey, how's it going? I said, Oh, it's going great. Yeah, yeah, everything's well. And he could, for whatever reason, see in my eyes, it creeped me out. He could see in my eyes that I was not telling the truth. He said, let's go get coffee. I said, great. And uh, he said, what's going on? And I told him, I'm not, I'm not living well. I've got some sin in my life, and I feel like the Lord hates me because of it. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, Rob, the, I'm, I'm covered in sin. The Lord can't be around sin, so the Lord can't be around me. He must, he must hate me right now. He's like, you've got to get your mind right. And he took me to a verse that I'm going to take you to this morning. I don't know if this resonates with where you're at right now, but I know this was enormously helpful to me as a young believer. 
He took me to Hebrews 4.16. And it says, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He says, Mikey, what does that say? When are you supposed to approach the throne of, ga- the throne of grace? I said, it looks like I'm supposed to approach it in my time of need. He said, exactly. When is your time of need? Is it when you're living well? Is it when you don't have any sin to confess? Or, was it, or is it when you're covered in it and you're aware of your deficiency? I'm like, oh, I guess it's when I am covered in it. He said, yep. And he says, and when you're covered in it and you know it and you're ashamed of it, how does it say you're supposed to approach the throne room? It says, hmm. It says I'm supposed to do it confidently. He said, yep. He says, and what do you find when you get there? I said, it looks like the verse says that I will find mercy and grace. He said, yep. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. My friends, for the next 60 seconds, 90 seconds, pray to your heavenly Father. Enjoy some fellowship time with him and I'll wrap us up when we're done. Lord Jesus, it is nothing short of an honor to be able to approach your throne room. Lord, we don't have fellowship with you because of anything that we've done that makes us worthy. Lord, we can't point to our conduct, we can't point to our lives and show you things that we're proud of that would suggest that we can merit being in your presence. But Lord, it is on the merits of your Son, of your perfect Son, Jesus Christ, that allows us to have access to the throne of grace. So we're thankful, Lord, for the privilege of being able to be in fellowship with you. We're thankful, Lord, that even though you, um, you demand holiness and you demand perfection, that through your Son that is realized that need is fulfilled. And Lord, you declare the sinner sinless, Lord, and you treat us as such. What an honor, Lord. What a privilege. Father, help us to live in a way that acknowledges that, that remembers that, and that daily applies that in our encounters with each other, in our encounters with the outside world. Father, help us to live a life that constantly reflects gratitude for the great price that you have paid on our behalf. Lord, may our lives reflect the great things you have done for us. And Father, may we be your ambassadors. May we, may we reflect the love you've shown to us and the price that you have paid for our salvation. And Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for Fellowship Bible, Lord, in this time of reorienting, in this time of refocusing and recalibrating. Lord, speak to this church. Speak to the congregation and speak to the leaders, the elders, the pastors. Lord, show us where we need to go as a church. Convict our hearts of where we need to be. And Father, I pray you do a work in us that will make us more salty, that will cause us to be a people that would look on us when others see us and they would say, what is different about them? Lord, that there is something divine in the midst of them. Father, that is our prayer this morning. And Lord, we're grateful that you hear it. It's in your wonderful name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. Have a blessed Sunday, fellowship. We'll see you next week.